This is the Pain Information Network, 27. Today I have Andrew Trescott back on, and we're going to try to tackle CRPS, which is an incredibly complex problem. But something that needs to be talked about, and something people want to talk about, CRPS is just kind of a little sidebar, is a type of pain that's really out of proportion to what is initially felt to exist. It can then evolve to all sorts of changes that involve uh, skin, bone, um, some of the peripheral hair, blood flow, goes on and on, and it can be quite debilitating. It deserves it deserves some time. So we're going to spend some time talking about it. We're going to go back to it. This is not a, a one-and-done type of problem by any means. This is the type of problem that it requires the right diagnosis, rapidity of treatment, and the right medications. It can be helped, and it's it's really gratifying to turn this problem around. But you got to know how to do it. Andrea is pretty passionate about uh, nerve entrapments and and some advanced thinking on how to treat pain. This CRPS has been around for 150 years in the in the descriptors literature. Civil War uh, injuries dis, uh, described it, and it's just evolved. It's evolved in different nomenclature. It's evolved in different thoughts on its pathophysiology, treatment. Uh, it's just one of these things we're working hard on, and we are trying to do a really good job with CRPS, but it's an unknown cause. We think we have some early uh, feelings on getting the uh, pathophysiology down, but just as we make one step forward, it oh, sometimes feels like we made one and a half step backwards. Um, we're getting smarter, and let's uh, let's go see what's happening with this thing. Uh, like I said, I'm really happy to have uh, Dr. Andrea Trescott back today. Um, she always does a fantastic job of explaining things, bringing it down to earth, and some of the more complex pain issues and pain problems uh, are dissected in a way that we all understand. We all learn something. I always learn something from her. Today we're going to talk about a problem that plagues so many people, and it is a real problem, and it's so misunderstood. It's called complex regional pain syndrome. We're going to go through the different types. We're going to go through the diagnosis. We're going to go to the treatments and what you can do and what you can expect. We call it a natural history of a disease. This is a disease state in itself, but it's a a pure pain problem. It leads to significant disability, uh, infirmity, and um, it, it, it can be treated, and it can be treated well, especially early. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Hans. As always, I really enjoy the sh- being on this show, and I enjoy the the commentary that we're able to pass on to patients. Great. Well, let's talk about it. Let's start with the history of this uh, very baffling disease. Uh, it's been described for well over a century. I mean, Civil War uh, descriptions uh, brought it to the textbooks. Go ahead with that. Well, Silas Mark Mitchell was a, a Civil War surgeon who noted that these patients who were hit with 
musket balls. And you got to remember that the Civil War was the first time there were really high velocity missile injuries. And they would, if they survived their injury, they would complain about pain that was way out of proportion to what the actual injury was. And they would present with, for instance, their arm wrapped in cotton, afraid to have anything touch it, even the lightest touch from the breeze touching it. And they would describe this horrible burning pain that led to a complete disuse of the extremity. And so Mitchell called this um, causalgia from the Greek word meaning burning. It's interesting. I I didn't realize I had had this connection with him because he also wrote a novel about the Civil War that he called Constance Trescott with my spelling of my last name. So it was really sort of a goosebump sort of situation when I realized what a close connection we had. So then this eventually got called um, reflex sympathetic dystrophy. And then in the 1990s, a group of physicians got together and said, no, we're going to take that name and we're going to divide it into some, we're going to group it into a couple of different categories, but we're going to call all of them complex regional pain syndrome. And unfortunately, I don't think the name has helped at all us figure out what was going on. The the reflex sympathetic dystrophy at least had some sorts of um, suggestions of what might be going on. One, that this was something that could not be controlled. It was an autonomic or an uh, an automatic reflex, just like when I hit your knee with a reflex hammer and your leg goes out, you have no control over this. There was the con- the recognition that at least some of the symptoms seem to be related to the sympathetic nervous system, not the feeling nerves, not the motor nerves, but the nerves that make you go white with fright and your pupils dilate and your heart beat faster. But then we had people who had pain that would get better if we numbed up the sympathetic nerves. And we said that was sympathetically mediated. But there were other people who didn't get better when you um, numbed up those nerves. We said that there was that causalgia when you could identify that there was a nerve problem, but that it was reflex sympathetic dystrophy if you couldn't recognize an individual nerve problem. And then that got called complex regional pain syndrome type 1 and type 2. What's fascinating about this is we're now – beginning to recognize that that distinction between an identifiable nerve problem and a non-identified nerve problem is simply a fact that we didn't recognize the nerves. And we now, there are a group of people, and I'm included, that believe that all, if not, uh, most, if not all, of this CRPS is due to a entrapment or an injury to a peripheral nerve. And that causalgia was... Um, what was recognized with the big nerves, but that there are all the, the body has this whole net of nerves that travel over it and that there was injury or entrapment to um, smaller nerves that have caused this, un, this previously unrecognized etiology. And so when I describe it to patients, I talk about that when you have an, um, a fire in the corner of the building, The building senses that fire and that smoke, and it turns on the alarms, which release the sprinkling system. And that water puts out the fire. And that's a great system unless the problem is an electrical fire. Because actually, for an electrical fire, water is the worst possible thing you can do, right? And so 
but the building doesn't know the difference. It can't tell the difference between a wood fire and an electrical fire. So it just keeps putting water on it. And that makes the fire spread. And the fire spreads to different zones in the body. And the alarms start turning on on different zones in the body. And pretty soon the alarms are including, even if the fire is only one area, the alarms are going over the whole body. And it's driving everybody nuts. Now, sometimes when you the, the water has put out that fire, but the alarm bells are still ringing. And if you could go to the outside of the building and turn off the power to the alarm system, that would turn off the alarms, and then you could turn the power back on and everything would reset, and that would be perfect, unless the fire is still burning. And if that's the case, every time you turn off the power to the alarms, as soon as the power comes back on again, within a few minutes, um, the alarms will start ringing again because you haven't treated the underlying problem. That's, so let's that's change. Really, I, yeah, it's an interesting analogy. That's well put. Um, yeah, go ahead. You finish that sentence. So let's, let's see what happens with the body. So when there's an injury, like a broken bone, the body turns on the sympathetic system. The repair cells, the white blood cells, the, the platelets, the, all of those are in the bloodstream, and that blood is whipping around at five liters a minute. So somehow you've got to sequester the repair cells out onto the extremity. So the sympathetic nerves clamp down the veins before it clamps down the arteries, which forces the blood to stay down in, let's call it the hand, as the, where the broken bone is. And then um, the repair cells, you've got to get them out of the blood vessels. So the blood vessels will um, pull apart that very tight membrane that's holding everything in there. So the blood vessel basement membrane starts to pull apart and fluid rushes out of the blood vessels into the tissues. That's what we call edema. And that allows the repair cells to get out of the blood vessels and to, to swim along the tissues in that extra fluid, you want to, you want to, you want to increase the blood flow to the area. So the area gets red and hot and, and swollen. Those are the repair cells. You want everything to stop moving. So you inhibit the movement of the muscles and you splint that area, just like you would hold it with your hand, that broken bone. Those repair cells get in, they start cleaning everything up, they start laying down new tissue, and as the repair gets more complete, the blood vessel, the sympathetic system shuts, starts to shut down, it allows the blood to move out of that area again, and everything's healed, unless the problem is a nerve injury. Because at that point, the blood vessels on the nerves themselves clamp down, unfortunately, and when you don't have good blood flow to a nerve, it starts to hurt. And that nerve pain, the pressure of the fluid on that nerve creates even more entrapment. And there's sympathetic nerves on the blood vessels. So there are more signals to the brain saying, shut everything down, shut everything down. We've got fire spreading. And so the body turns on even more vasoconstriction, even more decrease of the blood flow um, leaving the extremity. The extremity gets more and more swollen, and that makes the problem worse and worse and worse. Now, if you do a sympathetic block for the upper extremity, all those nerves, sympathetic nerves, which are traveling as a net all over the body, gather together in a place in the neck called the stellate ganglion. 
And that stellate ganglion, if you numb up the nerves there, it will shut down the sympathetic system. And since it's a sympathetic system that makes you go white with fright, that side of the face and arm will will get um, red and warm. Um, it When you're frightened, you break out in a cold sweat, so that area of the skin will get dry. Your pupils dilate when you're um, when you're frightened and your eyes get really wide so the eyelid starts to droop and the pupil constricts and that combination of the the drop in the pupil which is called ptosis and the constriction of the blood vessel which is called meiosis and the dryness of the skin called anhydrosis that combination of symptoms was named for a fellow um, by the name of Horner and that's called a Horner syndrome and that's one of the signs that you have numbed up the sympathetic system there in the face and upper arm and the temperature should go up in the hand and the blood vessels should dilate and the edema should go down and the pain should go away if this is being caused by the sympathetic nerves. The problem is, if you've seen the patient early, that may be all you need to do to reset the system. Unfortunately, if there is a continued entrapment of the nerve, if you haven't addressed the underlying problem, then as soon as the sympathetic Local as soon as the local anesthetic wears off, the sympathetic system gets the alarms again and it turns everything back on again. And what's heartbreaking is I've seen people have 40 F, I mean, four zero, 40 stellate ganglion blocks, all which give relief for a couple of hours or a couple of days, but they've never addressed the underlying system. So I had a guy the other day who had twisted his ankle and had um, was unable to walk because of severe pain. And he'd been actually told by Workman's Comp that there was nothing wrong because the MRI was normal. I did. A, he had um, some of the signs and symptoms that we'll talk about in just a minute about CRP um, when we think about CRPS. <clears throat> and I did a sympathetic block on him and he got great relief. But when I reexamined him during I mean, right after the procedure, I noticed that he still had tenderness over the nerve at the ankle, which would have been where he had gotten injured when he fell. And so I injected that, and then he got complete relief. And when the local anesthetic wore off from the sympathetic block, he had um, sustained relief. So it's really important to, I think, to go back and examine the patients while they're, while everything is shut down while they're because when these patients have pain they can't stand being touched so it's difficult to examine them so you do the sympathetic block i think not to diagnose sympathetically mediated or not sympathetically mediated but rather to use that time frame to identify what else is still a problem and so i guess that sort of segues into what are some of the symptoms of crps yeah i might add a little something to the pathophysiology which you yeah, we're very eloquent with. This seems to be one of those inside-out problems as well. There are neurological changes in the central nervous system. Um, we call it neurogenic inflammation, uh, a lot of different terms. It doesn't really matter. That cause extreme sensitivity, exactly what you just said, when things shouldn't hurt, and that's called allodynia, the ty- typical term we use. A lot of big terms, but when you're treating outside in, as you're, you're describing, we also have to think of what that outside-in pain has done to the central nervous system and how it's changed the central nervous system. And we have to kind of think in that broad perspective. Um, 
So, you know, it, it's, a, it's a hard thing to treat, especially if you do have a nerve entrapment like you're talking about, because we're, we're going to get a temporary relief uh, and the pain comes back, rinse, repeat, and we're getting nowhere. And we also have to think of the central nervous system. So, yeah, let's, let's go ahead. Go ahead. Take it from there. Well, that concept of the central nervous system is what we have been calling um, central sensitization or plastic or central nervous system plasticity. That if you get a signal coming in long enough into the brain, the brain doesn't anymore need the outside signal to feel it. It's almost like when you're in a room with a noise and you walk out, you still hear that noise, at least for a little while. And so part of the problem has been the concern that if this goes on long enough, it doesn't matter what you do um, at the periphery, you now are left with having to treat the central nervous system, which is much harder. And that's one of the reasons why treating this early is so very important. So the, one of the classic signs is a pain that's out of proportion to the original injury. Um, it can be as trivial as just hitting your wrist on a table, and then it doesn't go away. And instead of getting better, it's getting worse and worse. Uh, That uh, pain with the lightest touch, which we call allodynia, the pain that sustains after you touch. So I touch you and it hurts, but then it stays hurting for a longer period of time, which is called hyperpathia. And um, the idea that I, I do something that's painful, and but it seems much more painful than someone else would do. So when I move uh, that move it around, um, or I put pressure on it, it hurts much more than I would expect it to. And, um, so those are sort of the hallmarks, swelling, um, uh, pain with movement. And in my mind, this has been a diagnosis, a misdiagnosis that you're looking at the fire or treating the fever instead of trying to figure out why you have a fever. So somebody will get with a fever will get better with Tylenol, but that doesn't tell you why they have the fever. And so if you can figure out why they have a fever, then you can actually treat it. And so it becomes critical, I think, to keep on looking for what the underlying problem is. And so, you know, I, I have to be a little careful. I'm absolutely passionate about peripheral nerve entrapments as a cause of headaches and arm pain and CRPS and abdominal pain and pelvic pain and a whole variety of things. So I have to be careful not to to say that everything is a peripheral nerve entrapment. But boy, I tell you, the more I look for these, the more often I'm finding them. Who wrote, and so, who wrote the book, Andrea? Who wrote the book? <laughs> well, I just did finish a book on of, of peripheral nerve entrapment, 77 um, chapters of uh, individual nerves from the head to the foot that cause pain. And a great number of these have been misdiagnosed as CRPS for a variety of reasons. So, um, yeah, you know, I had it. I did write the book on it. So that book will be available in April. It's a textbook uh, for um, physicians, but hopefully, it will help change some physicians' minds and some physicians' approaches, make them think about some other diagnoses and to look for some other problems. So it's called. Peripheral nerve entrapments, clinical diagnosis and treatment. So, yeah, you're the authority. You're the world authority on this thing. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, if if anybody would know, you would know. And that's the the fantastic per- perspective we're getting on CRPS here. That's often overlooked. It's not just the simple type one, type two. 
No, and I think the problem has been we've been trying to fit patients into categories rather than just figuring out where the problem's coming from. Exactly. So exactly. Um, sometimes it's as simple as simply relieving the entrapment. If you relieve the uh, swelling and the edema, then the nerve stops being a trap. So that's a lot of that is uh, physical therapy, moving, even though it hurts to move, you've got to get those moving. Sometimes it is trying to reset the system that some, a light touch should not hurt. So there we call it, we, we do contrast. We have people rubbing the area with a piece of carpet to actually, as, as bad as it hurts, you've got to get those nerves re-educated. Um, sometimes it's Moving. And once you start moving, you can pump the fluid out, uh, but it's hard to get people to do that. And so we use a variety of medicines um, and injections to try and get people to be able to do the physical therapy that will help them get better. So medicines might include some of the anti-seizure medicines, which keep the nerves from firing off. It might be um, pain medicines, opioids, to be able to get them to tolerate the physical therapy to get them better. Um, there, it, it is fascinating because there is no gold standard diagnosis for CRPS, which means then that there's no gold standard treatment for CRPS. And the, the list of treatments that have been used is huge. I've done some. I've put together some lectures on the diagnostic studies, not one of which has ever been proven to completely diagnose the problem, and a lecture on the drug treatment, not one of which has been um, has been proven to treat the problem. So we've got a we've got a name for a condition that has a whole lot of presentations. And it may be like fever that they're all coming from different causes. So when you treat a fever that's coming from a virus with an antibiotic, it's not going to get better. Um, and so you have to have the right diagnosis. And we just don't have the tools yet to really make that diagnosis other than, in my mind, the history and the physical. So yeah. what was the mechanism of injury? And For instance, in this fellow I was describing, he twisted his ankle. Well, we know the nerves that are there in the ankle, and you go and you examine them, and sure enough, that's where it's hurting. Sometimes I get a three-phase bone scan. Uh, it's not pathognomonic. In other words, it's not that is CRPS, but it's helpful. Well, the problem is if you do a triple-phase bone scan on somebody, and this is where we inject radioactive phosphorus to look to see how the bones, um, how the body is laying down new calcium. The problem is if you put somebody in a cast, you'll have a positive triple-phase bone scan, which means that it's simply showing that there is a lack of movement of that extremity, which we already knew by the physical exam. Yeah. You know, I, I appreciate you uh, going through some of those medications just so folks are aware of what we're talking about. We're talking about central-acting medications like the gabapentinoids. That's like the Neurontins, the... Uh, the Lyricas or Pregabalins. Um, but there's also another one I use uh, that's gaining some traction. Of course, it's not perfect, but it's probably beyond the scope of this discussion, but ketamine. Because we know that when you have the nerve pain starting to affect the central nervous system, we know it, it affects certain parts of the central nervous system um, that leads to that sensitization that you talked about. 
There's some evidence that it involves what's called an NMDA receptor. That's an N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor. That's big words. I know, big words. But ketamine, uh, a older anesthetic, blocks the effects of the NMDA receptor. So that's very, it's very promising. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not going to fix the nerve entrapment, but it can help. And I've had some pretty good help from that drug. Yeah, it's interesting. Everything old is new again because we used that drug for many, many years. I used it in Africa doing volunteer work. It's a, um, and it has had fallen out of favor and then it's coming back. And there are, for, again, for some of those patients in whom the, the whole body has been ravaged by the condition, the, the building is up in flames, you have to use more drastic measures to try and get those flames under control so you can at least salvage what's salvageable. Yeah. Well, um, all right, so let's talk about uh, treatment. What am I going to do? I mean, we, we think we've got this. You may tell me what it looks like. It has typical characteristic looks after a while. But what are we going to do? Well, um, if it's relatively early, my therapies involve, first of all, seeing, let's say you banged your wrist on a table. Well, that will usually injure the superficial radial nerve, which travels in a very specific location. And um, sometimes I'll do something as simple as just an injection in the office, and it's really dramatic. Within five minutes, the pain is gone, the swelling's gone, and um, that may be all I need to do. If the symptoms come back, I may be able to freeze that nerve, which kills the nerve, but leaves the insulation still there so the nerve can grow back along its normal pathway. But now you've got three, six, eight, twelve months of pain relief to allow you to be able to do the physical therapy. Sometimes, if it's localized, we can use medicines either by mouth or on the skin, what we call topical medicines. And that may be enough to get the patient through physical therapy. Sort of the... the most common thing that's done by interventional pain physicians is this concept of the sympathetic blocks. Um, injections either at the base of the neck, which is the stellate ganglion, um, up at the top part of the rib cage, which would be a, a T2-3 um, sympathetic block, uh, where the nerves gather along the vertebral bodies in the low back, which would be a lumbar sympathetic um, it might be that an epidural injection, which can do both numbing medicine and the, can numb up the feeling nerves and the sympathetic nerves at the same time, especially if it's something on both sides, might be useful. Um, we used to do what were called beer blocks, B-I-E-R, from Augustus Beer, where you would put up a tourniquet. And, and this, I thought, was a medieval torture device. You would take somebody who couldn't stand being touched and you would start an IV on them, which means you've got to put up a, tur- a, a tourniquet, tap on their hand, and then um, stick a needle in there. And then we would take a elastic bandage and wrap it all the way as tightly yeah. as we could, all the way up the arm, and then put up a blood pressure cuff to... 200 or 250, as tight as we can get it to cut off all the blood flow. And then we take off the bandage and inject through that IV 
uh, medicines that would burn, and then we'd make them sit there for 30 minutes with that burning medicine in there, and then we'd let down the tourniquet. And I'm absolutely convinced that when the patients got better, they didn't come back, because not because they were better, they didn't come back because they couldn't stand the treatment. So we don't do that very much anymore. Spinal cord stimulators have been shown to um, give very dramatic relief for very severe pains that have not responded to medications, physical therapy, or some of the sympathetic blocks. And, um, and then putting medicines in the spinal fluid has also been used. But these, unfortunately, um, if you don't, this is one of those conditions when you see it early, you have a very high success rate. And when you see it late, there's almost nothing you can do for it. And so right. reminds right. me a little bit of post-herpetic neuralgia where you have somebody with shingles, and if you see them early when they've still got the rash, you can often not only treat the pain but prevent the long-term consequences. But when you have when the, when the rash has gone away and the, nerve has, the, the feeling portion of the nerve has died but you've been left with all these sympathetic nerves, there's just about nothing you can do to treat it. And that's the second leading cause of suicide in people over 70 years old. So um, they, these, we're finding that many of these pain conditions have – similar underlying problems. They might be treated a little differently. They might be triggered differently, but um, they sort of have this final common pathway of intractable, um, extremely difficult pain to treat that would have been very easy to treat early on. Do you know I still have patients that um, are being considered for amputation, and I do have one or two that have had amputation. That's not going to fix it. And it can make it well, worse. Yeah, we found that um, there, the risk of post, of um, phantom limb pain, the pain after an amputation, is huge in these patients who had pain before the amputation. And that's one of the things that's been quite fascinating. I'm a firm believer that the brain sends messages to the last known forwarding address. And if it had, um, if it had pain um, on the foot before the amputation, then it, anything it feels at the stump will be in, um, will be interpreted as pain on that phantom foot. And, of course, how do you treat the pain of a phantom foot if the foot's not there? But you have to look then at the, at the stump, and you can usually find a continued nerve entrapment somewhere on the stump. Yeah. And, well, that's been fascinating. This has been a great discussion. Um, Andrea, I, I don't think we're going to – cover this subject in one uh, one lightning round, but uh, you, you did as good as anything uh, could be done with this very difficult, well, troubling subject. I think the thing that the, the take-home message here is early, early, early referral to a pain management physician. The day you the pain is out of proportion to the pain you're having, the day the primary care sort of throws up his hand, you know, the MRI is normal. They don't go to a surgeon. Don't go to, um, you know, the to just physical therapy. If you're not getting better, if you're not better in two weeks after an injury, something else is going on, and you really need to be seeing pain management early, early, early to prevent the long-term consequences. Yeah, it is, and it's uh, just playing good risk management to start thinking like that. Patients are consumers, and they have to be acutely aware that the era of what the doctor says is final, and you don't know what you're 
really thinking about, we know what we're thinking about, and we'll tell you. Those days are done. Yeah, doctor, the doctor, the Marcus Welby who knew best. Exactly. I mean, you're a consumer. If you don't think you're getting someplace, get someplace. Um, and I think people think of pain management as being the treatments of, of last resort. But I really believe strongly that pain management, that we're the diagnosticians. We're the people who can help dis- help you find out exactly what the problem is by putting small doses of local anesthetic right on those structures. Yeah. Yeah, this has been a fantastic talk. And once again, Andrea, um, can't thank you enough. Anything else on CRPS or uh, anything else is, is, is quote, burning? <laughs> well, um, there, I'm not on CRPS, but actually on sympathetic blocks. So stellate ganglion blocks, I've just got a big grant to study um, stellate ganglion blocks for post-traumatic stress disorder in our veterans, and so um, active duty and the the veterans. So there's um, a lot of evidence now that you can reset that panic response with um, injections of the stellate ganglion. So yeah, right. another use of those sympathetic Injections, and again, instead of seeing the psychiatrist for PTSD, we're we're looking to try and say no. You need to see your pain management doctor for treatment for this this, this condition. Are they um, going to allow you to include adjunctive medications, um, not benzodiazepines, not uh, antidepressants, but things like uh, uh, alpha two blockers, uh, alpha two adrenergic blockers, or something like that? Are they going to allow that? Well, it depends on what you allow. For this particular study, we're looking at bupivacaine versus bupivacaine clonidine, which is an adjuvant. It's an alpha-2 blocker. So we're actually putting that in the stellate ganglion block in a double-blinded manner. So um, our our premise is is that by adding adjuvants to these stellate ganglion blocks, we're actually make them last longer and be more effective. And because you're reset for a longer period of time, when the medicine wears off, the patient doesn't drop back into those previous thought patterns. And so it it's actually um, one of the companies involved in this is called CAD, uh, Control-Alt-Delete, because the patients say it's just as though you completely reset the computer within just minutes of getting these injections. So if you're a veteran or an active-duty person with PTSD, This is um, a funded study. We're going to be in Alaska, North Carolina, and um, in New York. Um, It might be worthwhile trying to to, um, think about this as a potential treatment. Start asking your providers about the role of stellate ganglions in PTSD. Are you going to use functional MRIs to document? No, we're doing... um, Looking at some of the surveys first, the problem with the functional MRIs is actually that it's so expensive to yeah. do. So we're actually just looking at how the patients feel by surveys and then um, probably looking at some startle reflexes to see if they still have that increase, uh, dramatic increase in heart rate and um, blood pressure with uh, being exposed to a sudden sound. And sleep. Let's just do anything we can to keep the uh, psychiatrist and others from giving them benzodiazepines. That's, let's just Benzo do whatever the wrong direction for these, for these problems. All you do is dull the brain and you don't treat the underlying problem. Benzos are yeah, bad. They are. They are. And I, I've been preaching that on this uh, podcast. They interfere with sleep architecture. You actually don't sleep better. You think you do, but you don't. You don't get down to stage no. four. 
you don't up, get that sleep, that yeah, rapid optimal sleep. You stay and up so, in alpha two intrusion, and and it, it affects serotonin, so it actually can make your your pain worse. So they don't believe it, that, but yeah, no, and we know that the body makes GABA GABA immunobutyric acid, and the benzos work on the GABA receptors. They stimulate the GABA receptors, but they actually prevent the body from making its own GABA. And GABA, I think of as that Calgon take me away. Um, chemical in the brain that helps you relax. So when you stop taking the benzos, then you're worse than you were because your body's not making it and you're not getting it. So that's where we see those addictions occurring. Very nasty drug. Fascinating stuff. Thanks again, Andrea. And uh, you know I'm going to have you back on. Sorry, I can't I can't take too much advantage of you, but let's face it, it's winter in Alaska and although it was beautiful today, I, well, I've got to post this picture somewhere of Mount McKinley. Uh, tell tell you know, them what you saw. <laughs> it's now Denali. We don't say Mount McKinley anymore. But that was um, that was taken about a mile from where I live. It was a stunningly gorgeous day today. Uh-huh. And there, Denali was about uh, 110 miles away. And it's just bigger than life. It looked like it was in your backyard. That was a great picture. So. Thanks. Yeah, and I will connect with you again soon, and thanks for all your insight. Um, this was a great talk. Uh, good luck with the PTSD study. We, uh, we want to take care of our veterans. Thank you so much, Hans. I always enjoy it. Talk to you later. Well, that's CRPS, and it's a good start. Uh, chronic regional pain syndrome. Uh, and we had a nice discussion about PTSD. That really worked out. I, I was glad she brought that up. Uh, PTSD is a tough problem, too. But it, it's all kind of making sense, isn't it? Thinking about pain inside out, thinking about problems inside out as opposed to outside in. And we don't just want to throw drugs at things. We want to do things that make sense uh, with a minimal uh, chemical exposure. Um, in fact... Uh, Some of these interventional procedures are going to have great promise in the future for other disease states. We're getting smarter.